Bernstein is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. Now, here's your host, BJ Bernstein. Hi, this is BJ Bernstein. Law Talk with BJ is going to tackle something really important that's been in the news, the Me Too movement. And it's been quite a movement. We've been seeing all these resignations from major corporations. We've seen celebrities lose their jobs and probably will never see them on screen. Um, even at lower levels of companies, we're seeing people lose their jobs or retiring early. And so that's emboldened a lot of people to go forward and maybe say, I want justice, me too, for me, about sexual harassment in the workplace. And yet then they go and they call a lawyer and they find out what the law really is. And so I've called a lawyer to find out what the law really is. And that's Cheryl Legree, um, one of the top 100 lawyers in Georgia under the new super lawyers designation. And she works in this area um, with employment, discrimination. She is at her own firm, Legree Atwood & Wolf in Atlanta, Georgia. She's been practicing for 16 years. And she has had some big cases in this area and is a go-to for me a lot of times of sending folks to get help. And so I wanted to know more, and I think you need to know more. So welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off with, you know, the obvious. I, I come to your office and I tell you, um, I am just, I am empowered. I have been watching CNN, MSNBC. I've been listening on the radio and now I want my moment of justice. And it's been a hard psychological battle for me that I didn't tell someone maybe right when it happened that I was harassed at work. Um, I come to you. What is one of the first things you're looking for to figure out? Is there a case? One of the first things that we have to look for, especially in these times, because many of these claims are older, aren't anything that ha happened recently, is when was the last time this happened to you? I think it's an amazing thing that the movement has emboldened people to speak their truth. Unfortunately, sometimes their legal claims are time barred. And when you say time barred, what in particular are you looking at as a measure um, legally to, to know the timing and whether what's on time and not? These claims are primarily governed by federal law. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act primarily governs these claims, although state by state there may be state law torts that apply. For the federal claims, Depending on what state you're in, the statute of limitations to file a charge of discrimination with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is a prerequisite to any federal claim arising under Title VII, will either be 180 days or 300 days. Wow. Depending wow. on what state you're in. But in okay. So let me make sure, because I want to make this clear, that when you only have, like when I, I if I'm at work, and something has happened to me, and I have been sexually harassed, and we can talk about the definition yes. of that. But I, if I don't get to a lawyer and file something potentially as early as 180 days later, and I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that's 
filing to get permission to be able to sue someone. That's not suing someone. That's exactly what that is. It's it's you file. The EEOC has to be given time to investigate the claim. And EEOC, tell us what the EEOC is. The EEOC is the federal agency tasked with investigating these types of claims and all discrimination claims. And they do a preliminary. You file what's called a charge of discrimination, and you can do that with a lawyer or on your own. And then the EEOC investigates, and they do that by sending your charge to the employer who gets to file a response to that charge. And then sometimes the EEOC will take great efforts to investigate, and sometimes they won't, depending on what's said. If they feel like it's a very easy one to say, no, we don't think anything happened, um, they may not spend as much time investigating. But that process is lengthy. As in months, years? It can be. It's usually several months. It can be more than a year for the investigation. Wow. So you, the prerequisite is that, whether it's a woman or a man, and and am I right, this extends not just to sexual harassment, but that employment discrimination, racial discrimination, gender discrimination yes. in that sense. Yes, all of those claims. Okay. So I have to apply to them, state my claim, I guess on some fairly formal paperwork, and then I wait. Yes. And then if I get, you know, it sounds like Willy Wonka getting the golden ticket. Then if I get the golden ticket, then I can sue someone, right? You can always sue. You will always get a right to sue. Okay. You will not always get a cause determination. And what a cause determination is at the end of the EEOC's investigation, if they believe there's enough evidence to support your claim, they'll give you a determination that there was cause you were discriminated against. And then they'll attempt to, it's called conciliation, but it's they'll attempt to resolve the claim with the employer short of a lawsuit being filed. Okay. But you will always get a right to sue, and you can request a right to sue after 180 days. So you can file your charge at 180 days, and then 180 days later, if the investigation is not complete, you can request a right to sue and file in federal court. So if the EEOC then says, yes, you can go further in the process, and let's not say I'm not going to sue, what does it look like that I am doing if I'm sticking with the EEOC process? If you're sticking with the process— but they haven't made a determination yet, they'll investigate. They may talk to witnesses. They want names from you. They want to see any documentation you may have. For example, if you have text messages that prove your claim that you're being harassed by your boss, you'd give them those text messages. It'd go a long way in helping them decide that there's been harassment. And at that point when they make that decision, they engage the employer and the employee or former employee in a negotiation process similar to a mediation, sometimes in person, sometimes not, where they put an offer on the table to the employer and the employer decides whether they want to take it or make some other kind of offer. I will say that the vast majority of the time, cases do not resolve in that manner. They end up in litigation. Okay. And litigation meaning you go through this whole process and then you get a file suit anyway. Yes. Um, but the benefit of doing that, I'm assuming, is you get more information about what the other side is saying back about you. Yes. So that your lawyer can be more prepared? Yes, that oh is exactly God. right. I okay. mean, it's it's amazing to me some of what I have gotten out of the EEOC process that is helpful to my claims. Because I, I guess the client doesn't already know what they let, – let's say if I honestly believe that something's happened to me and I go through this process with you, I may say, you know, there's no reason not to believe what I've said, and yet you'll hear back what they're now saying about me, true or not, you know, that I'm a bad worker, that I had a bad attitude, that I revenge for something else. 
whatever it, was consensual. it is. There's millions of reasons that employers put forward for why things may have happened. So even so, if it's a direct sexual allegation that I actively participated in it, yes, and, and therefore, so for instance, one of the things I always get asked, and you know, when I appear on CNN. Um, couple times on this issue, you know, behind this camera, a couple people are walking up to me goes, but what about meeting somebody in the workplace and you fall in love? And that's who I got married to. I was just talking to my partner about this this week. You know, I I think corporations, if they want to err on the side of caution, (laughs) would have policies that prohibit that. And then, you know, one of you can leave if you want to date, if that's more important to you than it's just a slippery slope, and it's it's just dangerous to go there, in my opinion. And that's based on you handling these cases for a lengthy period of time and seeing that the door may be open somewhat consensually, and I guess it could turn much worse and becomes an assault, and then you've opened the door in terms of not, listen, and I want to be clear with everybody, not on the moral sense or that people are right or wrong. No, not at all. But in the context of being successful in suing or going through the EEOC process, you've made it more difficult. You have made it more difficult. And even if you take a step back from that, if you have a relationship at work that then goes south, and it may create a claim down the road, but it's going to be really hard to continue to work there. And you know, that's one of the things I sometimes ask potential clients. Well, what did you think would happen when you ended it or when he ended it? There are so many different shades of, of even these Me Too claims right? They're on a spectrum. And it's the same way that the courts view sexual harassment is on a spectrum. I just think you need to think logically when you're doing things. You've noticed, I I would believe, a huge volume of calls more than you ever had before. Yes. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. And are are most of them cases that you just say the time's gone by and, and that's it? You can't do anything? Um. Maybe, maybe not. And there's another piece of the statute of limitations. If there's state law claims separate from the federal claims, even if the 180 days has passed, for example, in Georgia, the statute of limitations would be two years on the intentional tort claims like assault, battery, state law, sexual harassment. I'm sort of loath to call it that because there's not really such a claim, but intentional infliction of emotional distress. The statutes of limitation on those claims are two years. So you may and still have a claim. And let me make sure that's in Georgia. So that's every in Georgia, state, right. I want to be clear because we've got folks everywhere. listening everywhere. Um, but in general, would that be fair to say that's about the range you're going to see nationally? Yes. Okay. So somewhere within that two-year range, it could be a little more, a little less, depending on what state you're in. That's and right. Again, when we're talking here on Law Talk, we're talking to everybody in the country and remember, with everything you hear, you've got to check with someone locally. Yes. Because I'm a great lawyer, but I can't sit here and give 50 states worth of uh, legal um, guidance other than say, you've got to find someone who does this to get that information. And we do that. You know, people call us from other states and want us to take their cases. And generally speaking, I will help them find a really good lawyer in whatever state they're in for that reason, because there's nuances. Now, some of these folks who come in, there's different levels of claims, as you mentioned. And some of them probably, have you had some that really cross over into that criminal arena where it is a crime or a clear-cut serious crime that occurred uh, in the workplace? Absolutely. And what do you advise clients about in terms of reporting it to law enforcement and choosing to go that route? If they've been assaulted at work, 
I generally feel like they should report it to law enforcement because, you know, the civil angle of every case is much harder to prove. And these people, because it, it could be a woman assaulting a man, these people deserve the criminal end of, end of it to go forward. And in the criminal end, that can go anywhere from an offensive touching, you know, simple battery, sexual battery, um, something more serious where you penetrate one of the organs or, of course, rape yes. or aggravated sodomy. Yes. Um, and all of those have components of but force and against their will, which yes. is what is in a unique factor in the criminal part where that element of force is usually required. Right. Now, I will say this, and you know more about this than I do, of course, BJ, at the criminal end of it. But I can give you a for instance that I, I have had people come to me and try to get the police to investigate what is something something that was an offensive touching, of course, but not something that the police were going to go out of their way to investigate because it wasn't rape and it wasn't. It wasn't to the level that you can see. Law enforcement, and it, again, it's across the board, but some are more interested than others in various claims and how serious they view them to be. And some of them have more resources than others. Got it. Smaller departments, right. smaller towns. What can they look at? Right. That's an interesting distinction I haven't thought of. So, I mean, your office is here in Atlanta, um, but we're very close to more rural jurisdictions. We are. Have you seen differences yourself in the rural handling of what you do, the EOC claims versus what you see in a more metropolitan area? Not really. Although I think you see, well, that's not even a fair statement. Um, some of the more egregious claims that we have come out of smaller jurisdictions, but not for any reason that I think really relates to whether we're rural or urban or anything like that. I do think one of the differences is that the employers in the metro area are larger by and large. I mean, obviously, they're small employers in metro areas, but when you move outside of a metro area, many of the companies are smaller. And this seems to happen a lot in small companies. Got it. Let me ask you this, because you're talking about these big companies. So here you, we we kind of have a frustrating picture where we have a very limited amount of time, as potentially as short as 180 days to get in to start something, um, or at most two years. A lot of these allegations we're hearing on the news are three, four, five, 10, 15 years ago. But we're also seeing, and I think this is what's confusing, is on a national level, large corporations, whether they're um, large employers or in the media. You know, all these media folks and entertainment folks who are losing everything. They are. How are you reconciling that you're saying to us, you, they may, someone may not have a valid claim and may not be able to sue, and yet the reaction of the company is to let this person go? What is the thoughts from the corporate side of why they're letting someone go based on an allegation that's old, that is not pursuable with a lawyer at this point? I think for some of these corporations— particularly the media corporations, um, they're worried about the backlash if they don't from viewers, from consumers, because there's more than one way to make this happen, right? Advertising. Advertising, losing dollars, and, and some of these companies have lost money until they take action, and then they take action, and I think they bounce back from that. But that's my sense of what's going on and, and some of the conduct that's been in the news from some of those larger corporations that's very old is so egregious and happened so often to so many women that they feel like they have to take action or suffer the backlash from it. And what about, you know, these corporations where you're reading these articles about workplace culture, where it's not that 
each person's being assaulted. And I'm thinking about the article about Vice, the media company Vice, and allegations there, and I'm not saying they were true or not, but I think that gets more into that general culture um, allegation. Is there something that can be done there um, through legal means other than just embarrassing the company into realizing <laughs> that we're going to vote with our feet and not pay them anymore when we know that's how they're treating folks. But that's a real concern. You know, it's one thing when you're older and you think maybe you can do something for yourself. But, you know, I think of young people getting out of college and it's their dream job. I think that was part of the culture of vice. Here it is, you know, they're cutting edge. They're doing all these interviews that we've never seen. And during the 20 Right. The last election zone, they had some great interviews and looked at things from a right. fresh perspective. Um, so that's what I would want if I'm young and going in that career. And then you find it's that that's culture there. What what remedies are there legal remedies there for culture? Well, so culture, you know, you can have a hostile work environment without any of the sexual assault aspect. And and what I mean by that is, you know, the law requires that it be either severe or pervasive. So there's cases where pervasive means, you know, there's calendars with naked women hanging around the office. There's people listening to Howard Stern or other probably more offensive talk radio and how that creates this voice club culture. And it can lead to a hostile work environment. There's a lot more steps, but, but it's certainly possible. And if you couple that with how people are given jobs within the company or, you know, I also think about the after five time period. Which yes. is also, you know, a lot of part of your job. Okay, you know, you but nothing think, good happens after five. Okay, got it. You know, nothing good happens at these sales meetings in these, on these islands where everyone's drinking. So ha- happy hours and such. You're taking act, a risk. You're, taking, you're a taking a risk. You're taking a risk. And, you know, we had a panel discussion at a CLE just a few weeks ago. And CLE, I'm just going to oh, point continuing out. Continuing legal education. In other words, Sorry. lawyers have to keep going to school after law school. <laughs> and we go to these programs. Also, sometimes at these exotic locations. But there is real learning that goes on. There is. As you're about there to is. tell us about there some is, of that learning. But, but this, is, this was part of it. There okay. were a couple women who were in-house lawyers on the panel, which means they work at the corporations. Um, and one of the points that I made was these, the federal employment laws are really the floor. They're very easy to comply with if the company really cares about complying with them. But what companies should be shooting for is much higher than that, creating a culture that's supportive of all of your employees, regardless of gender, race, whatever protected category. Um, So the companies that make concerted efforts to not have the kind of culture like Vice had, generally speaking, they're not going to get in trouble. Companies like Vice, sure, they'll get sued for sexual harassment, guaranteed. How can it not happen? Right. And and I will also say that I think some corporations, especially cutting-edge corporations, take the risk. They don't care. Like, we want to be fun. We want to do all of these, you know, have great outings. But do you think that's shifting now? Are you, have you already, are you starting to see a shift? Or, I mean, it, this is new, but it's not that that's new. Right. This has now been going on for a couple months. It's been a slow drip from Weinstein to now. But even when it just broke, Weinstein or Matt Lauer, I know I just told you the story. I was walking down 6th Avenue in New York and CNN called and said, did you hear about Matt Lauer? And I was like, whoa. And, you know, I was running over there. Um, so it's still relatively new, but but it's so dramatic. It's hard to ignore. So are you already seeing changes? 
that's really hard to say because I don't work in the corporations. Right. And so I don't know what they're trying to do differently. What about more recent? So you're getting all these calls, but are you getting some calls that are just some very recent behavior that have arisen during this cultural awakening? On Yes. How about that? Yes. You know, people who are going to do this don't care. I don't know any other way to put it. Right. They don't care. And it's about power. And if it's about power and they don't care, it's incumbent upon all of us to jump in with our legal rights if we have them and do it on a timely basis. That's right. But let's say I choose to do that. Okay. You, I've listened to you here right now and I'm like, you know, I am, I'm ready. I am ready. Um, But there's still some cautionary things about what jumping in means. And, you know, I'm ready to tell my story, perhaps. Um, And I can say this from just, and I've talked about this in media before, that when I was a young lawyer, I was assaulted by a judge. I didn't tell anybody. And um, still within the statute of limitations, the investigators came to me and someone else braver than I um, told law enforcement and then they started going around to all the women who had been around them and I remember sitting there thinking do I tell them the truth or do I not because you're alone with judges you're alone with lawyers no one will ever talk to me or be around me again or trust me Um, but I told them the truth and it turned out seven other people did and he was removed from the bench and had to plea in um, no low in court so I've been through that part but There is this other dangerous part to it, I guess, if I am ready to come forward with what I believe my truth is, that can be a pushback that I wasn't anticipating. Can you tell us about some of those? There's several things. First of all, if you file a lawsuit, it's public record. And so if you Google the name of someone who has sued their employer, one of the first things that's going to show up is their lawsuit against their employer. And because of that, that can impact your future career opportunities. Have you seen that happen? Yes. I have a client who would get job offers and they would Google her name and she'd never, or she'd be talking to a recruiter being told she's going to be the candidate, never get a call back. Wow. Radio silence. She hasn't been able to work in her field since um, we started the litigation. Wow. Wow. And that's really tough. But then you hear other people who suffer no backlash because of it. And I certainly wouldn't want to discourage someone from coming forward On the other hand, I feel like it's my obligation as their lawyer to tell them what could happen. You have to be ready. Yes. You have to be ready. And you have to go through that mental phase. Like I kind of what I was talking about, because in in my young mind back then, I was like, you know, no one's ever going to let me be doing what I want to do as a lawyer. Right. um, Because they're going to be afraid I'm going to accuse them of something. Right. And then I looked in my inner voice and just said, okay, no, if this other woman could do this and there's the other woman, I can do it too. And right. that, that worked. Right. But let's say you sue, there's even more that can happen because you now, when you sue, you're opening yourself up to the discovery process. That's right. The discovery process is a process of taking depositions where you have to answer questions under oath. And those questions are not just limited to what happened at work that day. They want to know everything about you. Am I right? Oh, that's absolutely right. And When you go into litigation, you have to prove what your damages are. And part of the component of damages in this case is obviously the emotional damages that you suffer as a result of what has happened to you. What that opens up is potentially, not always, but sometimes your medical records, your therapy records, especially if what you're saying is, yes, I sought therapy as a result of the harassment, 
those records are fair game in the litigation process. So, so you mean if I go to a therapist or I go to a psychologist or psychiatrist because, one, I've been assaulted or my life has been made miserable and I'm suffering from depression and everything else, not only my records connected to complaining about that person for that, but all my mental health records are That's open. That's right. And it can go as far as, for example, if you've had issues in your past. I mean, divorce is a simple one, but they want to be able to say, oh, you went through this divorce. That's really the reason you were upset, not because your boss hit on you or um, if you've had previous mental health issues. Which could be fair game if if someone is bipolar or schizophrenic or yes. something that affects or there could be something there that affects their memory or perception of things, you know, because things go both yes. ways. Mm-hmm. But but still, I don't know. You know, most people, when they come into your office, do they realize that that's how deep it could get? They absolutely don't realize that. And I will tell you some of the other things that bother some of my clients when they have to give the information. They can go into your social media. So even though I have it, um, my account on private or just to a group of friends? That's right. And, And there's ways around that, right? I'll review it and see if there's anything related to their claims before I would ever produce that. But who knows what a judge is going to do? If the defense attorney is aggressive enough, the judge might say, no, I think I think you should have to turn that information over. And people are always surprised, you know, their financial records are fair game, those kinds of things. So one last thing is, have you seen folks sued who make claims for libel and slander <laughs> because, and, and, you know, especially I see all these things again on the national news now where people are coming forward and talking about actors and actresses and directors and such. Um, and they get turned around and get sued. None of my clients, um, none of our firm clients have been sued in that way, but I could absolutely see it happen. And there have also been threats from defense lawyers that it could happen, depending on the company, right? I mean, some of these smaller companies, they'll tell their lawyers, I don't care how much it costs, smear them. Wow. You know as well as I do. It's, it's a <laughs> Litigation tough, is tough, not easy. Not it's easy. not easy. And some of my clients, at the end of the day, either during or after the EEOC process, not often, but there are times when I have to say to my client, I'm not sure you can handle the litigation or that it's good for you and let them make the decision of whether they're willing to open everything up. And we've been talking pretty negatively, but I know from your career, you've had some wins and some big ones that really change things um, for a lot of people's individual lives. So if someone, I think it sounds like make sure you're going to a lawyer who does this type of work. You know, there's a lot of lawyers, and if they've never done this before, this your case isn't the one necessarily to experiment with, am I right? I think that's absolutely true. And to really spend the time with your lawyer to do that gut check and just know up front what you're opening yourself to. I think sometimes people jump in and they don't pause. And I'm sounding like you at least try to get the pause in before they make the choice. I ask people, you know, take some time to think about it. You know, I will encourage people to go through the EEOC process and take that time to figure out whether it's really worth it to them if we can't get a resolution during that process to go forward into the public record. And most of the time they decide to do that because if they've decided to see a lawyer, they've summoned up the courage to pursue their claims. But once in a while, people decide, yeah, it's really not for me. I'm ready to move on. And that's fair because you, you've got to know what's right for yourself. That's right. And what's good. I can't thank you enough. I, I feel like we've touched on a lot of things that, you know, you just can't do in three minutes um, on, a, on national TV or radio and to go more in depth. 
And I can't thank you enough. And as we've been sitting here, I forgot to say this at the beginning, every episode, I pick a cup of tea for us to enjoy. And this one is cherry blossom. And spiritually, when you read about it, it's about renewal and rebirth. And when I thought about you and what's happening with the Me Too movement, and even though you have said a lot of things that make it, it that it's a huge, huge hurdle, I do think that no matter where you fall on this, we are at a rebirth and a renewal of taking a look at what is right and just in the workplace with each other as men and women um, so that we can all not have this maybe as what's threatening us with so many serious things going on. I think there's a lot of seismic changes happening in the world, and that's a good thing. Thank you for your role in that and your counsel with that. And again, I've been with Cheryl Legree from Atlanta, Legree at Wood & Wolf. This is BJ Bernstein. Thank you for joining us for Law Talk with BJ. And um, I'm looking forward to more of these. Thanks. Thanks, BJ. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ music theme written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.